here today to declare that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Even as we sing that you are the one who saves us, that asks the question, what do we need saving from? And Lord, we, we want to simply acknowledge that apart from you and your mercy and your grace, we don't have a shot in relationship with you. But because you're a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, and yet you have to deal with sin, so you dealt with it through your son. We celebrate his birth because he was born, pointing to his purpose, which was to come and to die in our place on the cross so that we could be saved from the penalty of our sins. And so we give you thanks. We humble ourselves before you. And we say you are king. But where you don't rule in our hearts, or in some corner of our lives, Lord, we ask your forgiveness. We ask that you'd meet us there as we draw near to you in worship, as we draw near to you in your word, that you would draw near to us as you promised. Thank you that you demonstrated that by drawing near to us, by sending your son whose birth we celebrated this season. Pray he'd be honored with all attention given to him today and that our affections would follow. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our kiddos, first through fourth grade, you're dismissed through the double doors there. Um, to your classes. I'm going to grab my large podium. I'm also going to Ebenezer Scrooge these so we can have them next week. (laughs) Thanks, Eric. Thank you to the Onans for leading us uh, in the Advent reflection and for worship team for leading us um, this morning in not only reflecting but responding uh, in worship. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, open it to Jonah. We'll kind of be in the whole book of Jonah, but uh, that's where we will get to. If you find Micah, it's to the left. If you find Obadiah, which would be like one page, it's to the right. Or you can look in the table of contents. There is zero shame in looking in the table of contents. And we're in a series called, What is God Really Like? What's He really like? Because whether we realize it or not, you and I have, we have some picture of what He's like. And particularly, it's funny, we mentioned, I think the first week of this, that uh, a theology prof um, who te- theology basically is the study of God or your concept of God, the word about God. That's what it literally means. But in his class, over that very subject, over this very subject we're talking about, these are seminary students. Um, and he asked them, you know, what are you like? What are your th- favorite things? And tell me about your character. What are your, you know, are you. Out, uh, outgoing or a little more reserved, that kind of thing. And then he, he gives them, to, he gets them to pass in the results. And then uh, he passes out another one. And what do you think God is like? What's God like in his disposition and how he, you know, acts in life or whatever? And he's like, it's remarkable that like 90% or more of the answers are identical. And what that's saying is we like a God who would be made in our image, who has the same preferences and tastes. Boy, he likes, you know, 70s rock. Oh, he likes hip-hop. He li- whatever. Uh, he doesn't like the people I don't like. He does like the people I do like. That kind of idea. Uh, A.W. Tozer is very famous. We started with this quote. I wanna, I'm just refreshing us to catch up. He says, what comes into our minds, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is that? Well, it's because it shapes how we view the world. It shapes how we view ourselves, particularly. If you want to know yourself, you've got to start with, what is God like? And then if I'm made in his image, what does that mean? But then the next quote from Tozer, he says, We tend by a secret law of the soul. So this is what's it's in the behind-the-scenes gears of your soul. 
We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our in mental image of God. Were we able to extract from you, from any man or, or woman, uh, a complete answer to this question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In other words, what you think about God and who we understand him to be, hopefully from the scriptures, that has not just like, that's really nice to know, it's supposed to do something in us, orient us, and has a good predictor of what's our trajectory in life going to be like. If we have uh, trouble in life, we are bogged down in life, if we can't get out of our own way, it's not just because you, don't, you haven't figured out all the latest you know, Instagram hacks on how to be more efficient, more fit, fill in the blank, but our lives actually also point back to who we imagine ourselves to be and particularly who is God. What is he really like? Is he mean? Is he kind of always annoyed at you? Are you in his mind, God's mind, are you kind of always behind? And he's just like, here you go again. What is he really like? Now, in order to know what he's really like, we started with where God gives the first self-disclosure of who he really is. Now, he's been showing who he is, but in Exodus 34, we've, we, we're trying to memorize this. This is the beginning point of God saying, I'm going to self-disclose here. You've seen me do these wonders and signs, and I've, I've kind of freaked you out at times and made you nervous, and I've delighted you, and you've seen wonders. But he says, but Mo, because Moses says, I want to know you more. And we don't want to go forward unless you go with us. And then he says, show me your glory. And this is God's answer. I'll show you my glory. You can't look at me and live, so I'll show you my back. It's not really, he doesn't have a back. But it's the idea that uh, this is, uh, if you will, getting a glimpse of his character. So we're going to say this um, aloud, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, because this is base camp for us. And this is really base camp for your life, even if you don't acknowledge it. So let's say this together. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And I said, this is God's answer to Moses' prayer. You're, you're threatening to not go with us because the Israelites had been so obstinate and disobedient. But Moses said, but, but remember, your reputation's at stake. Your, your name, like, and your name really means who you really are, your reputation, your character. So go with us. And God promises, I'll go with you. He, he renews the covenant he'd made earlier with them, though they had botched it royally. And then he says, I will show you my glory, and here's who I am. So the next slide, we've been tracing from that base camp again and again and again. This is the most quoted about who God is. This is the most quoted portion of Scripture elsewhere in Scripture. You can, and we've looked at several of them in, in Numbers 14, and we looked at, there's actually three Psalms that are very explicitly quoting. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. There's many hints elsewhere. And then last week we looked at Joel too. You get a, a gold star for going through Joel. Probably none of your friends have. Um, and then, don't get cocky about it though. And then today we're in Jonah 4. Jonah, and really we're in the whole story of Jonah, which you may or may not be familiar with it. Uh, you probably have some idea. You think, yeah, was it a whale or a fish and all that? Well, he was swallowed by a great fish uh, and that was because he disobeyed God when God called him. To, and we're going to see that story in a moment. In fact, I want to show you this slide. Um, we're, we're calling this for I knew that you are. Next slide. We did Jonah in 2019 as we were thinking about who's that person that God's putting on your heart. If you're a believer, a follower of Christ, who's that person, that family member, that coworker that God's been putting on your heart that you know or have a pretty good idea that, they don't know the Lord. And Lord, you're putting them on my heart, and I want to pray for them. 
And I want to be available to you, God, by being available to them. And I would love to see you enter their life and that they would experience forgiveness and life in Christ. And uh, we called it, Who's Your One? Who's Your One? And that theme really is going to be what resonates out of this. Because of the character of God and what he has, who He has been in your life and mine, Lord, let there be a spillover through me of you to someone else so that they might come to experience your mercy and grace and have life. And so Jonah, we, I, I hand drew this. Um, I'm not much of an artist, but this is basically the book of Jonah in, art, uh, in, let's call it, preschool art form, okay? You see in the J, there's an arrow going this way. And then you see in the O, there's some, it's down, and there's the cascading, like, into the water. That's chapter 2. And then Jonah 3 is, and now he's going the other way. And then... Uh, the H, there's a large plant growing up over it. And that's the book of Jonah. If you forget, this is a good mental picture to have. Um, that Jonah is that, uh, we're going to see, reluctant prophet. He's the one that God calls, and then it takes a little while to get where God told him to go. All right, so let's, we're going to make our way um, through Jonah a little bit. We'll camp in Jonah 4, and we'll come back around to, as we said each week, we want to see the character of God in the Old Testament, where they come back to 30, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, about God's character. We want to see it embodied in Jesus, and then we want to see their implications and invitations to you and me that we are to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness. And we all know we all fall short of that. And so this isn't a beat-you-up deal. This is an invitation by God to life that is truly life to be alive and on mission with him so that his compassion, his grace, the beauty of who he is would be on display through our not-so-beautiful lives, and yet his grace through us is beautiful. All right, Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. Flip there. Jonah 1, it'll be on the screen. Just the first two verses. Try not to skip ahead on me, all right, William, because it's, it's important. Jonah 1.1, 1, 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So God's calling Jonah, you're my missionary, you're my prophet, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is to the north and the east, you know, a few days walk, it's not next door, and he says, I want you to go there. And I want you to speak against Nineveh. Now, we don't think about Nineveh. You probably heard of it through this story, maybe. It was a great city, perhaps 600,000 or more people. It took three days to physically walk through it. It's that large. Um, at the time of Jonah, it was possibly not yet the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Some of you have heard of that. The Assyrian Empire and Nineveh being part of it eventually will conquer the northern ten tribes of Israel. Now, don't get lost and fall asleep on me there. But Israel, you know, fractures, and the northern tribes, Assyria being in the north, they conquer them. And Nineveh being a very important city, and at one point, also the capital city um, was there. And they had, they had a, a record, a reputation of being gruesome, uh, of being um, aggressive, of being a threatening people. And the Ninevites were Israel's, became at one point Israel's arch enemies. So God's telling Jonah, I want you to go give a warning shot to the people you hate. He knew. Jonah knew that it was prophesied that one day, they would conquer Israel, the Ninevites and the Assyrians. But he also knew their reputation, and he felt it with his fellow countrymen and women. Reputation of being nasty, cruel, violent people, especially to the enemies and enemy kings that they conquered, including beheadings. And they used to redecorate their city by skinning their enemies alive. You're now awake, aren't you? torturing them for a time before murdering them. I want you to see this. Uh, I get this from John Mark Comer. Uh, I told you after Avinash and I planned this series, then we realized like, oh, there was a series done on this. It's not exactly the same format, but the same idea. 
of who's this God that goes with us. It's called God Has a Name. You can watch eight messages. It's excellent. You can buy the book. Um, but he, he um, in his third message, uh, where he goes into Jonah, he says that uh, even recently that they've, un- archaeologists have unearthed an old library in modern-day Iraq and found writings of the Ninevites, particularly the Ninevite kings. I'll just give you some examples here. Not to cause you to lose your breakfast, but to cause you to feel what Jonah felt when God said, go to Nineveh. Okay? It's two slides, and we'll move on from the gruesomeness. One, one king uh, says, uh, the first one, a pyramid. Yeah. A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flame. So some other city, uh, this Shalmanezar II, says, you know what, I'm going to decorate your city. I'm going to let, as people are coming in your city, see the heads. And um, your youths and your maidens I'm going to burn up in the flames. Uh, Sennacherib, you've heard of him, potentially. If you read through the Bible, spend time in those books, you're like, can we please get out of Chronicles or whatever. Um, he was a Ninevite king. He says, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and their entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. Next slide. I flayed him. This is speaking of another enemy king. Um, I'm not going to try to say that. Well, I will. Asher Nasserpal II. I always tell people, if you're going to read and you're going to say a Hebrew name, just act confident and go through with it, all right? It's not a Hebrew name, it's a Ninevite name. Uh, he says, I flayed him. His skin I spread upon the wall of the city. It wasn't quite rattlesnake boots, but it was enemy king skin to decorate his man cave, if you will. And then the last one. I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. I need a keen hand dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. Hey, they didn't just kill people. They tortured people. They humiliated people. They, they, they raped people. They um, cruelly treated the children. These were vicious, vicious people. So it makes sense that Jonah goes, what? Verse 3, what, how did Jonah respond to the call? But Jonah rose up and he fl- to flee to Tarshish, not from Nineveh, from the presence of the Lord. Next slide. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Two times. He's not just running from the enemy. He's not just kind of, eh, I don't really feel like going there. I'm running from the presence of the Lord. Now, ironically, or as we would expect, wherever you go, God can show up and will be. And he does. And he disciplines his servant in that moment. Some other people get involved. The storm comes. He says, throw me in the sea. And then the fish swallows him. And he gets uh, a few days of gastric juices. So who knows? It may have helped his sermon when he got to Nineveh. Maybe he was just bleached. We don't know. But he runs from the presence of the Lord. He is the wrong way prophet. Verse 3, it said, but Jonah. Whenever God calls me to something, and the first word is but, buddy, that means I'm going in the wrong direction. But Jonah didn't just go kind of a little bit over here. He goes about 2,000 miles away. So think Nineveh, sorry for you, northeast, and think Tarshish, modern-day Spain as far on Google Maps as they could go back then. And he doesn't just say, I'm just going to go the other direction. He puts planning and money into his disobedience. He goes down. He figures out what's the right ship to get. He pays the fare. And then he goes in the ship and he's like, now I'm even going to go down into the ship. Maybe it's even extra hiding down there. Jonah is working his disobedience. But again, we can relate because he's saying, what in the world? Okay, so after the fish spits him out, chapter 3, the next slide, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. And here's his one-sentence sermon. Now, it may have been longer, but I think God 
uh, loves for us to see. It doesn't matter how good his sermon was or bad or if he wanted to be there. But it's going to work. Here's his sermon. Next slide. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Simple observation. He doesn't say God's destroying you now. God is even gracious and compassionate to give him 40 days to respond to this um, lackluster, don't want to be here prophet in his sermon. How do they respond? Verse 5 of chapter 3. Then the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. That's a way to say, we repent. We have been wrong about you. We have been um, rebellious against you. We repent. Verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. Kings never did that, especially these kind of kings. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. They're going to fast. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that he may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Verse 9, notice this. The king has said, We've got to repent. Everyone's got to do it. And then he says what Joel said last week. Who knows? Who knows? If we repent, we don't have God on the hook like he owes us now, but who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I want to say this. I'm thinking none of your Bibles say with compassion. Anybody have a Bible that says with compassion in verse 9? You do. You've got a good Bible. Mine doesn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm pointing this out because in the Hebrew, with compassion is there. But in our English translations, it doesn't say with compassion. Now, why in the world would I point that out to you? Well, we're going to find out as we keep going. This is their response. How does God respond? Verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But, oh, there's another but. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. It greatly displeased, displeased Jonah, and he became angry. The word Dis, um, the phrase greatly displeased there has in it elements of a word for evil, calamity. In chapter 3, verses like 8 through 10, there's two other times when the same Hebrew word is used, and it's sometimes evil, like it's a wicked thing, and sometimes it's calamity. It's not, a, it's not evil, it's from God. It's a consequence that's hard to deal with. That's calamity. And Jonah says he was greatly displeased he thinks this is wrong he thinks this is he may not use the word evil but this is out of bounds god and i am ticked off that's why i call this next slide this is jonah's peeved prayer um he's a prophet who decided i'm going to make up my own terms and when i want to obey you i will and when i don't and i think i have very good reasons why is he displeased and angry? He is angry, there's no doubt. But he tells us why he thinks it's wrong, out of bounds. And even bigger, he tells us why he went to Tarshish. Look at the next slide. He prayed to the Lord. So he's praying. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore... In order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Why? Why does he disobey God? He quotes Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Why does he disobey God? For I knew. It's something that Jonah knew. I know this, and this is why I went the other direction. This is why I'm throwing shade your way. I'm annoyed, I'm fuming, because basically God is not behaving the way Jonah wants him to, 
And yet Jonah didn't go because he knows God will always behave or conduct himself consistent with his character. Always, always, always. What does he know? For I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. That's why I'm, I'm miffed, I'm peeved. Verse 3 and 4. Therefore, God, I'm so ticked off. Please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Now, that's a sharp turn. But we've been there when something doesn't go our way, when someone that we despise or who has wronged us, and their life seems to be hunky-dory and happy and fat. Frankly, I just want to die. Why should they get away with this? And here I am trying to be obedient, try to keep my nose clean. I go to church for the most part. I read my Bible every now and then. Like, death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, verse 4, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Or some of your translations say, do you do well to be angry? Like, is your, you're calling me out of bounds. Is your anger in bounds? Is this a righteous anger? Is this a reasoned anger that fits with my character and who I've called you to be as my missionary, as my prophet, as my ambassador? Do you have good reason to be angry? Uh, we don't get it as well, but, but the book of Jonah, uh, I believe written by him, this is not an allegory. This is him saying, let me, let me tell you how messed up my story is. But this is actually has a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of uh, kind of Babylon B like satire. Like Jonah's kind of like, hey, I am sort of a walking meme here. And he, and, and so God's saying, do you have good reason to be angry? I mean, you know, um, I think John Mark, when I was watching his sermon, he said, this is Hebrew for you idiot. But Jonah's, he doesn't, notice he doesn't answer. He doesn't answer. There's two truths here um, in this first peeved prayer section. Number one is that God refuses to be constricted to our categories, yet he will always be consistent with his character. And often the breadth of God's love or compassion for others can still lead to bitterness in you and me. Second thing, it is possible to have correct theology in a toxic, angry heart. Um, I'm not going to out anybody or slam anybody. I will tell you, though, um, we're all sinners. We all are prone to self-centeredness, etc. But this idea that you can have correct theology and yet a toxic heart or a sealed-off heart, I witnessed it a lot in seminary. People who know Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and win preaching awards... And yet, the effect of God's grace on their lives, at some point, it sort of became a, yeah, that's a nice thing in the past, but I got to be precise and significant. So Jonah's an example for all of us. We can have, we can memorize Exodus 34, 6, and 7. But when we get a little bit capsized, when we get a little bit irritated, we can quickly grow a toxic, angry heart. Jonah's theology is right on the money, but his heart is resentful. That's why God is gracious to ask the question, do you do well to be angry? I see you're huffy, Jonah. Do you have good reason to be angry? Well, what I want us to get here, and I think the book of Jonah is this very message. We are Jonah. We are Jonah. On the highest high holy day of the Jewish year called Yom Kippur, which means Day of Atonement, Jews read the entire book of Jonah out loud in one sitting. It's not the only thing they read because it's all day long. Y'all would love it. I would love it too. Jews read the entire book of Jonah out loud in one sitting. And I have a rabbi friend uh, in Israel named Josh, and he confirmed for me that it's very important for them on that day because Jonah emphasizes repentance. 
repentance that is needed, repentance that is invited, and that we all must repent from going our own way from God. One rabbi said the Day of Atonement is the one day a year that tolerates no superficiality. And Jonah brings our rebellious heart attitudes to the surface. Therefore, the response of the Jews in that service, and they do this out loud like we did a response reading around, they read it and they say together, we are Jonah. Let's be Jewish for a second. We're not. Let's say it together, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. So we're being confronted with God as he reveals himself in Exodus 34, and he's the God who goes with us and his character keeps showing up. We're confronted with that same truth. We are Jonah. We run the opposite direction from where God sends us. We're staunch in our resistance to God's restoration project for all sinners, not just the ones we would choose to receive his mercy. We are Jonah. We need to repent. That means have a change in our attitudes and our direction. And we're being hit with the urgency of what they say in this Jewish service, the gates of heaven closing at any moment. Because at the end of the service, they do this reading in response, we are Jonah, we are Jonah. At the end of the service, they have this urgent prayer called the closing of the gates, reminding the worshipers that the time is closing fast to repent of a heart attitude and to still receive God's mercy, forgiveness, and restoration to fellowship with him. So we are Jonah. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, and we would say, we totally get it. They, they have raped and, and been cruel and been vicious, and they're deadly, and they're aggressive toward y'all. We can get that. And Jonah says, the reason why I didn't go is because I know that you're a God who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and about it, and I didn't want them to come to know that. We are Jonah. So the question is, it's easy to think history lesson. The question is, who is that for you? Who is Nineveh for you? Who's an enemy for you? Now, some of you actually have enemy number one in your head, like you even think enemy number one. Some of you are like, I would never use the word enemy. And you, yet you know how much you would wince if you saw them after all they've done to you or all they've done to someone you love and they come to Christ. And you'd be like, now how do they get off scot-free? Or how, why is it that their life, they seem to kind of just almost ignore you, God, and their life seems to be just going great? Who is that for you? The people you hate. Because the Ninevites were the people Jonah and his people hated. The person at work who makes you want to quit. The person who's abused you, perhaps. That doesn't make their abuse right. Maybe someone who smeared your reputation, or they broke your heart, or they betrayed you. Who is that for you? Who comes to mind? Whose face do you picture in your head? Maybe as recently as Thanksgiving and there was some opposition around the table or we didn't even get to Thanksgiving together. Who is that for you? What if God forgave them? What if God showed them grace and mercy? Do you do well to be angry? Do you and I have good reason to want to see them not receive compassion and grace? Well, God asked him in that, and he runs off and doesn't say anything. He kind of harumphs away. And Jonah 4, look back there. Then Jonah went out from the city, and he sat east of it. I think he's probably, yeah, he says, there he made a shelter for himself, sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. He's probably thinking maybe their repentance was kind of a quick quick deal, you know, kind of the last night at camp around the campfire, we're going to get right with God. And then, you know, they show up and get back home and maybe God will just torch them. So the Lord appointed. So here, there's his miffed prophet out of line, blaming God, and yet see the compassion of God in verse six. So the Lord appointed a plant. He's going to comfort and school Jonah. He appointed a plant to be shade over his head and deliver him from this discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. That is also funny. Verse 7, but God appointed a worm. I want you to notice three times it's used God appointed or God provided in your, your Bible. 
God is, he's not, he's not only compassionate and gracious to Ninevites, he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger with his rear-end prophets. Meaning he's acting like a rear-end and he's out of line. But notice, he's going to comfort and school him. And he does the same with you and me. God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and withered it. When the sun came up, God appointed the third time a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. He became faint and begged with all his soul to die. Here it is a second time. Death is better to me than life. Now God, having comforted him and then taken that comfort away and then let me turn up the heat on the east wind. He's got Jonah in a place. Are you gonna be teachable now? He comes back. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. I mean, Jonah is, he's holding on. Verse 10, then the Lord said, you had compassion, the word there is pity or compassion, on the plant for which you did not work. I brought it up. You didn't cause it to grow. It came up overnight and perished overnight. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals. People debate all that kind of stuff. Don't get lost in the verse 11. The point is, people and animals are more valuable than your precious plant that you had nothing to do with. I was comforting you with it. I'm providing, I'm compassionate toward you. And you're you going to now direct me where my compassion and grace is allowed to go? Are you my, uh, my, my sieve, my colander? Like, uh, only, only this, these people can get my grace or your grace. And so he schools his prophet. Now, we're going to move to the uh, implications, invitations for us in just a moment. But I want to say this. Jonah is not wrong in thinking that the Ninevites are, are wicked people, that they, des- they deserve to be dealt with and punished for their sin. He's not wrong. That had even been promised uh, by God. If you, you mess, you know, you get out of line with me, you mess with my people, I got their back, I'll come, I'm going to take care of it. But in this moment, who knows? He did respond in compassion to these people, though Jonah hated them. But I want you to know if you're like, yeah, but what happened? You go about 150 to 200 years later, God deals with them because the repentance, though genuine now, does eventually wear off. They go back to their torturing ways, their uh, evil ways, their wicked ways, and God deals with them and punishes the Assyrians. In fact, Nahum, the next slide, Nahum also quotes Exodus 34, 6, and 7. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. That's later in Exodus 34. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. For those of you going, but that's just not fair. Why didn't they get what was coming to them? Well, if they repented and they stayed with the Lord, then he may have said, you know what? I know, I know that the punishment for sin will ultimately happen through my son and I can forgive based on that. But they, they also return to their evil ways. So God says, all right, I'm slow to anger. Remember, it's long of nose. Long nostril about your anger. And he says, but I'm also great in power and I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so he does deal with the Assyrian people. So to close that loop for you who are like, dead gummit, they shouldn't get away with it. They didn't. But it's, it's, it's legitimate, authentic compassion, grace, and mercy and restoration of them for a while, even though we would think those people don't deserve it. And God being compassionate and gracious does relent in terms of bringing calamity. Well, we move from Yahweh to Jesus. We'd say this is who God is, compassionate and gracious. We see that embodied in Jesus. Um, You see that in the lepers who cry out to him wanting to be healed. And they're like, have mercy on us. Mercy and compassion, very similar ideas. Um, you, you see it in the story we already talked about last week in the story of the prodigal son and him like a father goes out and has compassion and he falls on him and he kisses him. He returns back. Those are um, stories Jesus tells, but particularly healing those lepers or healing uh, the man along the way. And he says, you know, uh, he calls out to him, son of David, which is saying, I believe you're the Messiah. Have mercy on me. 
He didn't say, here's my resume. Here's why you should come through. He's calling out to what? I only shot I got is your character, that you're compassionate and gracious and merciful. And Jesus embodies that over and over again. When his disciples are like, do you want us to get rid of these children or this woman who's bothering you? He's like, no, let them come. And he says, I will have mercy on you. I will forgive. I will heal. Now, he doesn't promise to always do it, but he can always do it when he wants because of his character. He's always consistent with his character. Let's talk about implications and invitations. We can skip to that, William. (laughs) The implications are he is. That's what Yahweh means. Yahweh is the word that we get Lord, all capitals, from that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives your and my iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. The emphasis there, he keeps loving kindness for thousands. And sometimes things need to be dealt with, and he does deal with them justly because Ultimately, God is just, and he's the one able to justify thus us, not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of us having faith in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And so, implications for us is he is, therefore let us be. If he's compassionate, that means to suffer with. We need to open our eyes. We need to not be so convenient and so closed into our private worlds that we miss the people who are hurting around us. We're to be compassionate and gracious. When we are ticked off, peeved, irritated, annoyed, it's our opportunity to go, Lord, give me the patience to be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger because they're getting on my last nerve. But I know, Lord, that you don't have a last nerve. I know, Lord, that you are compassionate and gracious, and I want to be merciful as you, my heavenly Father, are merciful So this isn't just a study of God and his character so we can know some stuff. This is so that we can also join him as we seek to be compassionate and gracious as he is, as we seek to be slow to anger, as we seek to be people of of reliability and consistency relationally, of loyal love and trustworthiness and faithfulness, that we're people of our word and we're people of the word so that when he confronts us, we don't say, we don't say I'm heading to Tarshish. We say, this is the last person I want to listen to. This is the last person I want to be patient with. This is the last person I want to see you come to faith, bring to faith in your son, Jesus. And yet I know that you are gracious with me. You are compassionate with me. And so his grace, his mercy, when it's embraced by us, then can also be extended to others, even the ones that we would just call them. There's going to be a a great season this year to practice this because it's an election year. And the very people that many of us will be like, the last people I want to have anything go their way are on this side or that side politically. Let me just encourage you, don't go to the Tarshish of hostility and cutting off. But be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Realize, except for the grace of God, I got no shot either. But he's been so gracious and compassionate and patient with me. Let me extend that to other others, even the person that, oh, that person that, that you brought to mind. You can see their face. You can even hear their tone. And God may need to root out some bitterness in your heart by just saying, God, you're compassionate and gracious. I'm going to extend that to them, though I know they don't deserve it. I don't think they deserve it. But I'm not going to camp on that. I'm going to leave it in your hands and the timing in your hands. And I would love the story, God, that that person who wronged me might come to be, uh, to know Jesus and to know his forgiveness and grace. We may never be reconciled fully, but oh, would they be a beautiful story. And Lord, cause my story to be beautiful because I extend your grace over and over again. Corey Ten Boom. There's a picture. 
I don't really know what Corey Ten Boom looks like. Um, so if this is somebody says, ah, you Googled the wrong picture. I, I got this from someone else. I'll just full disclosure. That gets me off the hook. But it looks like it could be, right? I, I think it is, uh, including uh, her, her sister. And um, many of you know somewhat of Corey Ten Boom's story. Uh, this is during, you know, this story I'm going to share is post-World War II, but right after it. Nazi Germany went through and was just, you talk about Ninevites, they were the Ninevites of their day. Vicious, cruel, hostile people. And now in 1947, after um, Corey and her sister Betsy, um, they had been in a concentration camp. And then after that, the after effects of her sister's health was not great, and she watched her sister die. Not in there, but after. And in 1947, she was in a church in Munich, Germany. So 47, the war ended in 45. She's in a church in Munich, Germany, and she's just finished a message about the God who forgives and that he forgives. And I just want you to hear her account of it. As we think about, Lord, I am Jonah. How in the world do I extend your compassion and grace? She says, the solemn faces stared back at me. So she just finished the message. Not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next moment, a blue uniform and a visored cap with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp between, uh, beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me and his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, and I remembered the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying, I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Fraulein, will you forgive me? As I stood there, I whose sins had every day needed to be forgiven, could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. But I had to do it. I knew that. I knew it was not only a command of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, uh, Corey Ten Boom had this home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And she made this observation of the particularly women that were there. She said, those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was simple, it was as simple and horrible as that. And still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Man. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. 
with, my, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. What I would say is, you and I will never know God's love so intensely, his compassion so deeply, his grace, a willingness to support others so thoroughly, unless we extend the hand, unless in an act of the will, we say, though you are my enemy, I will love you. And I will be merciful as my heavenly Father is merciful. Merciful. It's one thing to know factually the Lord is compassionate and gracious, but it's a life-giving thing. Not only to embrace, but extends the Lord's compassion, grace, mercy, and forgiveness for us, but extend it to others, especially the ones we believe don't deserve it. I'm going to pray the worship team's going to come up because God made a way. He made a way for all of us who deserve punishment that that punishment would come, but for those who would have faith in his son Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, we could know forgiveness. We could know life. We could extend it to others. That's why we celebrate this season. He was born for that purpose, to die for you and for me. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing O Holy Night to remind ourselves that God is the God of patience and a God of peace. Who is that person that he would have you be patient with this week? That he would have you forgive in your heart, even if you, there will never be any reparation. Who is that person, their face, that maybe you say, you know, how could I be available to them even though I despise them so they might come to see the grace and beauty of Christ? Let's close our eyes in prayer. They're going to begin in a moment, and then they'll invite us to sing a holy night. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so gracious. You are compassionate. If any of us are honest, we know that we don't deserve it, even if sometimes, Lord, we, we kind of have a this thought that you didn't have to do that much for me. But for those others, yeah. Remind us today that we all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And you made up that gap by sending your son. He came to dwell among us. And we beheld your glory. We beheld your character. Full of grace and truth. So as we sing this song, Lord, may it not be a, a sentimental thing. And yet, Lord, open the vents of our heart to be in awe of you, a God who extended your grace to us. So we might be ambassadors. That the aroma of Christ might be through our lives, even in those moments when, ugh, just don't want to forgive. We just don't want to be compassionate. But thank you that you are. Let's stand and sing.